Okay, good morning. As you can tell, I'm, I'm only a little bit frazzled this morning, but I have notes in front of me, so I shouldn't forget anything this time. Uh, there's a few of us in the Men's War Council that meets uh, every other week on, on Monday nights, and we're doing a Bible read-through this year, and we're reading through, a few of us are reading through the Bible chronologically, so trying to read through it in the, in the, in the way that the events occurred. And right now we're in the book of Deuteronomy, and if you're familiar with Deuteronomy, it's, it's kind of Moses' last speech. It's his last, um, last words to the Israelites before he climbs a mountain, gets to see the promised land, doesn't get to go in, and then he dies, and the leadership passes on to Joshua, and then the, and the people go into the promised land. He's been leading these people for 40 years through the wilderness. And basically what Deuteronomy is, is him giving them the law again, giving them God's commands, his words. And this is the law that he went up on the mountain and brought down to them and gave them as this gift from God. And he says to them, and, and what we read this morning, he says, you know, the law is not too far from you. It's, you can do this. And then a couple chapters later, he basically says, you can't do this. You're not going to do it. You're going to be rebellious because you're stubborn and you're you're obstinate and you're, you're going to disobey God. But here's what I'm doing right now. I'm putting in front of you the way of life and the way of death. And if you want to obey God, you're going to get life. And if you don't want to obey God, then you're going to get the consequences for it. I'm laying out these two paths for you. And this is a, this is a theme that we see all throughout Scripture, these two paths, these two ways, these two roads that God lays out. And, and even in Psalm 1, which Kathy read for us this morning, um, you know, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners, but his, he, uh, the, the way of the righteous is the way that's blessed, but the way, way of the wicked will perish. And today, Jesus himself, who we've seen already is the second Moses, goes up on a mountain, gives the people this retelling of the law, and at the very end of this sermon, in his conclusion, he says, I'm setting before you the way of life, and I'm setting before you the way of death. Read with me, if you will, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Here's what, here's what Jesus says. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Set before you a, a narrow and, and, and rugged path, a difficult path, a path of life, and I've set before you a wide and smooth path, a path that leads to destruction. And over the next four, four weeks, as we finish up the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see that Jesus actually concludes his sermon with four separate warnings. We're going to look at one of them a week for the next few weeks with four separate warnings where he's basically asking them, will you obey and follow me or will you hold on to your status quo and follow your own path? And the warning comes in that there are, there are serious consequences for whichever path we choose. And Jesus, I love, I love Jesus because he doesn't mince words, right? And we really shouldn't mince words either. He's talking to some people who think they've got it all together. He's talking to other people who think they're, they're safe because they're Jews. He's talking to others who know they don't have it together and they're loving it 
Because he's giving them hope and encouragement, calling them to this new kind of life. But of all the people he's talking to, you know who he's really talking to? You and me. Jesus is addressing all of us in this sermon. He's speaking to all of us, those who think we're safe because we've gone to church our whole lives, those who who think we've been buddies with Jesus our entire life, those who think we're on the inside. But Jesus is quite clear here. He's saying, don't fool yourselves, because if you fool yourself your entire life, in the end, you will end up a fool. So I'm eager over these four weeks to walk through these four warnings, and I would encourage you to write this down as kind of this overarching theme in this conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. That Jesus is saying this, what are you going to do with what I've said? What are you going to do with what I've said? And he repeats that four separate times at the end of this sermon. And as I've said a hundred times from this pulpit, if something gets repeated in scripture, pay attention. It's a big point. What are you going to do with what I've said? Which is another way of Jesus saying, what are you going to do with me? What are you going to do with Jesus? So let's consider then this first warning, which I read to you. I'm going to give you a different translation here. Verses 13 and 14 on the screen. Where Jesus says, basically, make sure to enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the path is smooth leading to destruction and many people enter through it. Oh, how narrow the gate and how rugged the path leading to life and few people find it. And Jesus' main point in this entire uh, warning here is easily the first sentence. Make sure to enter through the narrow gate. These are words that should convey to us a sense of urgency from Jesus, a sense of urgency especially to those of us who would call, us, call ourselves Jesus' disciples. And what he's saying is, do everything in your power to get through that narrow gate. It makes me think, have you, have you noticed that there's now a billionaire space club? If you've followed his career over the last several decades, Sir Richard Branson, you know, he's, he's kind of spent every... I mean, he's leveraged as much money and power and wealth as he can to get himself into space. And then now there's these other billionaires who are kind of falling on his coattails, guys like Jeff Bezos from Amazon and Elon Musk, who just started, you know, he started a company about getting into space, SpaceX. It's this billionaire's astronaut club of all these guys who've leveraged themselves They're considerable assets to pursue a goal. They've given everything. They've spent as much as they can to get somewhere, to get to a place maybe that's really, well, not maybe, is very difficult for a human being to get to. Or or consider, uh, you've you've heard of the Holy Grail, right? And and the the, the search for the Holy Grail, which people have have searched for 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 millennia, really, and, and perhaps made most famous in the, in the film Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Right? You remember Indiana Jones' dad, who was played by Sean Connery, and his whole life was devoted to finding the Holy Grail, the cup that Jesus Christ used at the Last Supper. And he pursued it with every ounce of his being, even though it cost him his wife, even though it cost him a relation with his son. He set everything else aside in order to find this one thing. 
And, and, and these people, Richard Branson, uh, this character in this movie, risked everything and did everything in their power to achieve something. And Jesus is saying, do everything in your power. Spend every last penny. Ring out every last bit of your body and your energy and your strength. Go to the ends of the earth. Do everything to make sure that you enter through that narrow gate. Okay, what gate are we talking about? What is Jesus talking about when he says the narrow gate? It would be good to know that. With a stern imperative, he directs us to this narrow gate, but what gate are we talking about? Now, some would say that this is the gate of salvation. This is, this is the gate of conversion to Jesus Christ. When a person puts their faith in Christ or makes a decision for him or, or repents and believes. And I, I would agree with this if we have a correct understanding of what repentance and conversion to Jesus Christ as Lord actually means. Does it mean in your mind, I prayed a prayer a long time ago called the sinner's prayer, and I'm safe forever because I prayed that prayer? Or I made a decision once upon a time at a camp or at a rally or at a crusade, and that's what it means to get through the narrow gate. I'm already through it. But more likely what Jesus is talking about here is about entering his kingdom by choosing to take his teachings seriously and actually obey them. Is he talking here about actually submitting our lives to him as our Lord and trusting him that he actually knows what he's talking about? Trusting him that he has our best in mind and knows the right way to live and knows what it means to follow him. Entering by the narrow gate is embracing a life of obedient discipleship in the kingdom of God, the kind of life that can only be lived by absolute faith in Jesus. This should be something we should be willing to do everything in our power to achieve. This is the narrow gate, the narrow gate of obedience to Jesus Christ, the narrow gate of trust and faith. And the more I've considered and, and studied this passage, the more I, more I think that the gate and the path are really two metaphors that Jesus is really using to refer to the same reality, the two paths, the path of life and the path of death that lie before us. One is wide and one is smooth, and, and the other is narrow and and rugged. The wide gate is obvious. It's broad and it's plain. The narrow gate is, is perhaps less obtrusive. It's less noticeable. It's not obvious. The wide gate Jesus speaks of is beautiful and it's elegant. It's enticing. It's, it's inviting. It's even seductive. But the, but the narrow gate is plain. Even so plain as to be ugly or unattractive. And, and those who see this plain gate might easily think, what an ugly, overgrown, broken down gate. Who in the world would want to enter into that thing? It could perhaps be a, a difficult gate to find. Like, have you ever been in the woods and had a trail kind of disappear on you? Versus having a trail that's been well-traveled and, and well-marked. This trail perhaps has become overgrown from, from disuse. But I don't think Jesus is necessarily saying that the gate or the path are difficult to find, but rather that people don't find the path because they don't look for it. 
It's a path, a gate that's often ignored. But for persistent eyes, the path is there. It's accessible. It goes somewhere. It just isn't easy. It shows itself to those who actually stop to pay attention. Now, probably eight or nine years ago, my son and I got into geocaching for a couple of months. <laughs> it, was, it was fun. We, you know, it's, uh, there's people, thousands of people all over the world, they hire, there's thousands, maybe millions, I don't know, of these little geocaches, uh, which are basic, it's like a big treasure hunt all over the world, and you can, you can go on the app and find the precise GPS location of, of something that somebody's hidden somewhere, and you probably walk by them all the time, but you're not looking for them. And the thing about geocaching is you know exactly where it's at and you gotta go find it. You gotta go, you gotta get there. Sometimes it's hard to get to, sometimes it's right next to the road. And you get there and you look for it and it's hidden in a tree or under a rock or somewhere. And then usually sometimes, well, sometimes there's a prize in it. Sometimes you just write your name in there and the accomplishment is all there is. But, but, but it's that same kind of thing here, I think, with the narrow gate that's not obvious. If you're not looking for it, you're not gonna find it. If you're not looking for a geocache, you're probably not going to find it. And as Jesus has already pointed out back in verse 7, that to all who knock on this narrow gate, it will be opened. To all who seek out this rugged path, it will be found. So So the narrowness of the gate and the ruggedness of the path also refers metaphorically to the the discomfort which will come naturally when we go through it or when we travel on it. The word for narrow, you see there in verse 13, the word for narrow actually has the connotation of being cramped or confined or distressed or troubled. You ever, you, you know, you ever come through an opening or something, maybe you're, maybe you're hiking or maybe you're just, you know, you're trying to get through a door and you look at it and you kind of go like, I probably could have got through that when I was 16, but ah, if I suck in, I might be able to kind of squeeze through it. Cramped, confined, distressed, troubled. You might come up to this gate and say, I'll never fit through that. It's impossible. The imagery could even be the imagery of a birth canal, a cramped, tight space through which only one person and a very small one can pass through at a time and not without difficulty and pain. You see, the point of narrowness then is that the gate itself will take discomfort to enter through, and yet it's a discomfort that leads to life. Several years ago, well, over 10 years ago, when I was working up at Mount Bachelor Academy, I got to be part of these experiential classrooms as a teacher. We would, during the summer, take students on different trips or do these classrooms where we would go out and have an experience or do something active in order to learn. And there was a group of us who took some boys down to Eastern California, to the Eastern, um, Eastern Sierras and the White Mountains, and we went rock climbing and camping and did all sorts of stuff down there. And one of the things that we did was we took a hike up to what was called the Champion Spark Plug Mine, which, has anybody ever been up there before? It's, it was a mine where the, you know, the Champion Spark Plug Company, they, they would mine quartz and I think it was called Angelocyte, and, and it worked as a... Um, well, it was what they made spark plugs out of. What's that called? Anyway. Insulator, thank you. It was an insulator on a spark plug. That's what they used. So this was a working mine 
uh, earlier in the century, and now there's this really cool hike, and you can go up there, and this, there's this whole mining camp up there, and you can camp there, and uh, there's water, and you can explore the mines and everything. But it's about a two-mile hike straight up on the little path that's about that wide for most of it. And off to the side is just kind of, you go, right? If you go off the path, you go. Well, we got a late start on this hike, and we parked our vans, and we started hiking up this little draw for a mile or two, and then all of a sudden, I'd never been to this place before, but I had two, guys, two other guys, adults, who were leading, and they'd been there before. And we get maybe a mile up, and we stop, and they're kind of talking. I'm like, hey, what's going on, guys? They're like, uh, we think we missed the trail. There's actually a trail that should go up, and it might have been that trail back there. And so we're trying to decide, okay, do we go back to the trailhead like a normal sane human being, or do we try to side hill it and hit the trail, just go straight up and hit the trail? And my buddy Paul says, well, I'll check it out. I'll, I'll scurry up there and figure it out. He, he runs up and figures it out. He's like, hey, it's up here, guys. Come on up. So there's about a dozen of us, uh, mostly high school students. And we start going up the side of this little mountain, and it's mostly shale. Have you ever climbed on shale before? Okay, so it's like two steps forward and three steps back. And then every time you move, you loose all these rocks that fall on the people beneath you. So in an hour, we got about four guys to the top. We had a few guys uh, stuck to the mountain, almost in tears. And the rest of us said, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna go down and find the trailhead. So we lost about an hour. By the time we got back to the trailhead, there was one group with one flashlight who were going up ahead of us. And there's about eight or nine of us who are now at the trailhead and it's dusk. We have two flashlights that are running out of batteries between the two of us. And we're gonna go, okay, we're gonna go for it. So we, go, we, go, we start up this trail, and, and pretty soon it's just pitch black. We've got these two little flashlights. And the guy who's leading, who's been on the trail before, you know, you'd stop every once in a while. And it's, and it's almost like we had, you know, like a, like a tracker, like a Native American tracker who gets down on the ground, you know, with his flashlight, and he's looking for the trail. He's like, I think it's this way, <laughs> you know. And it was rough and difficult where, you know, the, the edge is right here, although we couldn't see what was at the bottom of it. But it was one of those times that I'll never remember. When I think of a difficult, rugged trail, that's the trail that I think of. I hope that we survive this, but it's going to be difficult going on the way. And so hearing Jesus and obeying his words, which is living a life of obedient discipleship, is not easy. It will be rough and rugged. What is easy, though, is living a life where everything on the outside conforms to society's norms, or where I'm doing everything on a moral and religious level that meet all the expectations of the people around me. So they look at me, and they think, well, he's a pretty nice man. She's a pretty great gal. It's easy for us to put on a mask and play the part, but Jesus has been ha hammering on this very thing the entire sermon, calling us not to an outward obedience, but an inward heart obedience to him. You see, the wide road is the road of, of outward religiosity, of external righteousness, but the, the difficult path is the way of heart righteousness, the way of true obedience to King Jesus, an obedience which is difficult and uncomfortable, and comes with its dangers in this world. And by the way, we made it to the mine. And back down. It was beautiful, too. So. 
Jesus, though, is telling us in so many words that we have a love affair with comfort. We love to press the big red easy button. We tend to stay where we are. We tend to go with the flow. We tend to avoid pain. We tend to live in the status quo. But as Dr. Noah is famous for saying, at least once a week, if not every day, Jesus never said it would be easy. And if we would be honest with ourselves for even a minute, as uncomfortable as it may be, many of us have progressed very little in our discipleship because we love our comfort. But Jesus doesn't call that discipleship. He calls it disobedience. He calls it a wide gate and a smooth path. So there's two gates, there's two paths. There's also in this this little metaphor, in this little word picture that Jesus gives us, two groups of people, what I call two groups of travelers. There are the many, right, the many who enter, in verse 13, who enter onto the wide and smooth path. And there are the few who, who find the narrow gate, who find the rugged path. So so the first distinction here is one of quantity, right? We have many and we have few. The path of discipleship is not the way of the masses. It's not the way of the crowd. It's not the way of the mob. It's not popular and it's not trendy. Those who follow Jesus aren't the people who are looking around to see what everyone else is doing before they make a decision. They're the ones who have their eyes fixed on one person alone, and it's Jesus. They swim against the current because they're looking to him alone. So there's the the many and the few, and their actions are very different as well. Our text tells us in verse 13 that the many enter the wide gate and the smooth path. They, they enter it. And it says that the few, in verse 14, it says that they find the narrow gate and the rugged path. Seeking and finding pushes us back up to verses 7 and 8. And finding is the natural result we, we saw a couple weeks ago of seeking. Jesus promised that all who seek will find. Which means that those who find the path of obedience to Jesus have been, as I said a few minutes ago, looking for it. But in contrast, the wide gate and the smooth path isn't sought out, it's simply entered. You don't have to look for it. It's there. It's the life we will live if we make no other decisions. It's the way we will go unless we find this narrow gate. It's natural. It's easily accessible. It's popular. It's visible. It's obvious. It's not necessary to look for it because we are fallen, sinful human beings who simply travel that way unless we find another way, a better way, a a least traveled way, a narrow gate and a rugged path. And the final distinction that Jesus makes here in, this, in these verses is the distinction between the end of the path, what's on the other side of the gate, and it's a different reward for each one, a different destination to which we'll arrive. One is destruction and the other is life. I said before that Jesus 
gives us four warnings in his conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, and here is the warning. Beware the destruction that comes by not entering the narrow gate and keeping to the rugged path. Avoid that destruction at all costs. And the alternative to destruction, the the reward for obedience to Jesus' words is life. This is what Jesus offers us in the gospel, is life. This is why we, in our mission statement, call it the life-giving fullness of the gospel because that's what Jesus gives us, is life. Here's the question for each one of us, every single one of us. Is the reward of life enough to motivate us to search out the narrow gate? Is it enough? Is the peril, the danger, the cost, the difficulty, the discomfort, is all that worth the prize and the reward that we will find at the end? Because Jesus says that whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, whoever gives it up, whoever goes through this narrow gate, whoever takes the difficult way for my sake will find it. So when I consider Jesus' metaphor here, this, this first warning at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, this first call to, to a radical commitment of heart obedience that he's calling for from us, his disciples, I notice three things. I want to conclude with these three things. The first is an observation. The second is a question. And the third is an encouragement. An observation, a question, and an encouragement. So first, the observation, and it's this, that, that one of the paths we can take with our lives is attractive. It's popular, it's non-invasive, it's not threatening, it's easy, you don't have to take anesthesia for it, it's wide and smooth, it doesn't require much from us, and it seems to offer pretty decent rewards like comfort, convenience, maybe even money or prestige, popularity, any of those things that many of us want. But in contrast, the path that that Jesus lays in front of us, the path that he requires his disciples to walk on is not attractive. It's not comfortable. It's unpopular. It's difficult. It's rugged. It's narrow. It doesn't seem to offer us anything but kind of a distant reward. And get this. Here's another part of the observation. When I think about all those things, that Jesus is not seeker-sensitive. He is not super interested in giving us what we really, really want or what really, really feels good in the moment. He doesn't win or even compete in popularity contests. He doesn't expect that we should either. He's too concerned with what is good for us to give us what feels good to us. He wants us to actually crucify our appetites rather than feed them because he cares too much about our souls. And and I'll say this as well, that, that being on one of these paths is not an option. Jesus doesn't say there's there's five paths, but here's the two I really want to talk about. He's saying there's one of two paths. You will be on one or you will be on the other. 
And I fear that for so many of us, we believe that because we've at some point made a decision for Christ or because we've prayed a prayer when we were younger that no matter how we live, we're good to go, that we're secure. That no matter how we live or who we follow or what path we walk on doesn't matter. But Jesus doesn't give us that option. You can't read these words and say he gives us that option. He says, if you follow me, the gate is narrow, the path is rugged, but it will be worth it. You can't claim to follow him if you don't enter the narrow gate and walk the rugged path because that's what discipleship is. So second, a question In this last section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will repeatedly lay down the same challenge, the same command, the same appeal, four times in different ways. Will you obey me? And in obeying me, will you take up this certain kind of life? And Jesus does not stop talking this way for the rest of Matthew's gospel. He doesn't stop talking about this narrow and rugged path of discipleship. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't try to bring us in with great promises and then bait and switch us. He says things like this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So the path of discipleship, of following Jesus, is the path that leads directly to one of the most gruesome instruments of torture ever invented by the mind of humans, the cross. It was a tool that was crafted from human cruelty, but which God, in all of his wisdom, has chosen to transform into the most life-giving and soul-saving invention in the universe. And so walking the path of discipleship to Jesus Christ will be a daily and weekly grind of dying to myself, of dying to yourself. And in the end, the final question Jesus asks is this. Here's the question. What will you do with my words? What will you do with my words? Will you obey or will you not? But this is heavy, so let me end with an encouragement. And I actually pray that in your mind and heart this morning, you're actually wrestling with that desire that we all have to run away from Jesus, or at least from his demands. And perhaps there's a conflicting desire in you to run towards Jesus with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And you feel yourself just going like, I want Jesus, but ah, that sounds hard. Perhaps I can encourage you with this thought this morning, that Jesus never asks us to go anywhere he's not willing to go himself. The eternal Son of God has taken on one of these paths and not the other. And in obedience to his Father, He has walked through the narrow gate and the rugged path, and in so doing, he set a a beautiful sacrificial example for us. So as we walk behind him on the road of discipleship, or even as you maybe consider today whether or not that road will be worth it in the end, and if you should 
follow that road or not, follow this Savior or not, the only way that we can do it, the only way we can follow him on that road is if we keep our eyes on him. And I had no idea Jonas was going to read this this morning, and he had no idea I was going to read it this morning, I think. Maybe he read my mind. I just want to close with this, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. It's to call us to the encouraging, the encouragement of putting our eyes on Jesus as we move forward. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. And the, the medicine, the, the cure for faint-hearted weariness is to do one thing and it's to look to Jesus, our Savior and our King. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, we come again, we consider your son, Jesus. We look to him, and we're reminded that at moments, at times, that's all we can do on this path where we feel like we just want to lay down and cry. All that we can do is look to you. On this path where we have stumbling blocks and things that we think we can never get over, like cancer, the loss of a dear loved one, our own impending mortality. Lord, we pray that as we see these things and they come up before us, that you would be bigger in our minds and our hearts than they are. Father, would you wean us from the temptations of the wide gate and the narrow road that call to us like a siren song and call us away from heartfelt obedience to Jesus. And we pray that you would give us the strength that we need. We thank you for that strength in the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit to give us strength to walk, to fit through this gate and to walk this road. Only, Jesus, we pray, only by faith in you. We're grateful that you've gone ahead of us. We're grateful that you pioneered the way and that we simply follow our Savior follow his lead and we look forward to that one day where life will not be something we look forward to but it will be something that we dwell in fully we're immersed in that we swim in that we enjoy with you in perfection we pray this all in your name and for your glory amen